Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's podcast, I am chatting to James Golding from The Pig. Now, James's impressive chef career has very much come full circle. Yes, he's worked with some very big names in London and in New York. He learned his craft under Anton Edelman at the Savoy and then moved to Le Caprice, working for Mark Hicks. And as head chef at Soho House in New York, his team cooked for A-list actors, music stars and and even royalty. But James began his culinary journey in and around the New Forest, foraging for mushrooms with his dad and getting bored out of his mind at Mr Bartlett's The Butchers when his parents were having some very nice chats about cuts of meat. Fast forward around 20 years and James is back in his childhood stomping ground of Hampshire and Dorset. And as group chef director of The Pig, he makes sure that all the restaurants source their ingredients either from their own kitchen gardens or from producers within a 25 mile radius. That includes beautiful cuts of meat, which James turns into British charcuterie with, wait for it, Mr. Bartlett's son. Passion has definitely replaced boyhood boredom, as you'll hear. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Okay, James, thank you so much for sparing the time to uh, meet me, and uh, what an amazing spot. Can you just explain where on planet Earth are we, please? So we are at the Pig on the Beach in uh, Studland in sunny West Dorset today. Yeah. Yeah. And I've just had a look around your amazing kind of uh, garden and you grow some incredible stuff. We're overlooking the ocean uh, yeah. and it's a beautiful sunny day. I couldn't really ask for more. So uh, thanks for spending the time in peak season particularly. Um, we're going to have a good chat about what you do now and some of the stuff that I just saw in your garden. But we're going to start with a little bit about your kind of background in hospitality, if that's okay. So can you just say what's your first memories of, of getting into kind of food and drink? Where did it start? <coughs> um, I think, well, I think my first memories was when obviously I was a kid. I mean, I think that's where most chefs tend to uh, decide what they want to do um my family my mother is from uh italian heritage and, and my father was english and always wanted to learn how to cook so she she used to hold like, pasta making sessions and and things like that around the house so one of my earliest memories is them making pasta and seeing it all hanging on coat hangers all around the the the, the house as, as a child but I, probably my nonna as well she she used to when we were kids nobody got to sit there and have any fun, you know, when we were, we had to be in the kitchen, we had to be cooking. And for me, that was fun, you know, so making risottos and things like that. That's probably my earliest memories. Wow. Um, so from that, obviously I went to school. I, I, uh, I um, went to St. Peter's in Southbourne. And um, when, when it was time to decide what, you know, I had to do for the rest of my life, which is how it feels when you're, when you're that age. Uh, I, my father suddenly sort of mentioned to me that I might be able to make money out of, cooking which is something that obviously I'd love so we went along to Bournemouth College and we um, 
we went to a uh, careers fair there and, and I just remember sort of turning the corner and seeing um, this chap dressed in this, you know, beautiful, pristine white uniform with a big, tall white hat and amazingly polished uh, shoes. And that guy turned out to be David Boland, who was the um, uh, head lecturer for the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts uh, Specialised Chef course. So um, I spent a lot of time chatting to him. Uh, the course was quite interesting, actually, because it was, it was basically an apprenticeship. So you spent a short amount of time at Bournemouth College and then you went out into industry. So you'd spend um, two and a half years in industry and then intermittent times throughout that period at, uh, at Bournemouth Paul College learning what you need to learn. So um, I was really excited about that, but then I sort of found out that they only took 12 people on out of the whole course. So I, I also went to Brockenhurst to check to see what they did because obviously I didn't think I'd get onto the course because it was such a, you know, prestigious uh, course that was in high demand but I went for it anyway I went and did the interview and you had to chop an onion and make a cartouche and all this sort of stuff and um, and yeah I, I got a letter in the post one day and it was one of the happiest days of my life I got an apprenticeship with Anton Edelman at the Savoy and I left home at 16 and went to do that so that's how I got Amazing. into cooking. And do you know why you got let in specifically was it was it was it the banter when you went for the interview because your your, your kind of history as well you know you've done a bit of foraging as kids I know family meal times were yeah. important do you think it was more that or was it the onion that you cut up um, no I mean yeah I mean you have the interview and obviously there's a question of why do you want to be a chef why do you want to get into the industry and I think you know from from somebody who takes on apprentices now um, I think when you've seen a few of them you do tend to see something in that person so you will tend to you know know the kid who will do something and the kid that maybe is either doing it because he thinks it's good at the time or maybe because his parents want him to do it. You know, that you can sort of you can sort of get a good idea of that person. So I'm hoping, I mean maybe different David Bowen tells a different story, but but maybe you know he saw something in me that that he liked. And yeah, I mean, you know, cutting an onion and making a cartouche at the age of 16 years old, you're gonna make a mess of it pretty much no matter what you do. But um yeah, it's it was it was nerve wracking, and I think you know it's it's definitely it was definitely a good test of of your you know of, of your determination by by doing that the interview and the test I think at that age. So yeah, I yeah. think that's why amazing and and yeah, fortunate that it went well because it could have been a completely different trajectory. Because you know when people hear where you've then got to, it's it's quite incredible. Um, big change then going up to the city at sixteen. That's young to leave home, let alone yeah. going up to London. How did that feel? That's right. I mean, you know what. I was I was ready to leave home at 16. I was one of those kids that when I was 14 or 15, I was always out with my mates on my bikes, you know, probably causing trouble somewhere. So we, you know, I think I think I was ready to go to London at 16. I don't know that mentally I was ready. I think that, you know, I was homesick for quite a while. Um we we were quite lucky we put into the PM club, which I don't think it's open anymore, but it was it was a place in Earl's Court where they used to put young chefs that for basically to, to live for I think you could stay there for a year and then you had the opportunity to get your own flat after that. So it was kind of a caretaker, you know, position for them, but um but it was definitely not a caretaker position working at the Savoy because you you started on time, you left when they said you could leave, there was no special treatment, you were basically there to work, to learn, to be the best that you could be. And and I think that, you know, it was tough, but I, you know, looking back on it now, I look back on it in fondness. It, was, it wasn't something which I, you know, struggled with or disliked. I think it was just a part of my life. And, and 
the one thing I'll always remember is, is at the Savoy at the time in the sort of mid nineties, it was one of those places where people went for a year. So you went there for a year, you worked on a couple of sections, you, you, you left on the exact date that, that your year came up and you got given this beautiful Savoy certificate, which basically had, um, you know, obviously it was all you know, bossed all beautifully. And then you had this amazing little paragraph at the bottom, which was your reference from Anton Edelman and all the positions and the, the um, what's it called, the sections that you worked. But the thing was, was that because that was a sort of culture, after I'd been there for a year, I sort of then became one of the longest standing members of the team in a team of 130 chefs, which is what was in the kitchen wow. when I started there. And so it's really weird. You know, you're, you're, you're just turning 17 and suddenly you've got all these people who are a lot older than you who have just started and probably been cooking a lot longer than you coming up to you saying, where do I find this? How do I do that? How do I... And it's, it was a very interesting time for me. And, and um, yeah, I loved it. I mean, yeah. learning classical French cookery in one of the, arguably one of the best you know, hotels in the world was incredible. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah. yeah, I think um, they seem to train people really well up there. Because I, I was Mark Hicks, I think, was head chef by twenty-two. Yeah, and I was like, that blew me away that you could be that young. Dorchester, I mean, he was at Dorchester with uh, Mosserman, wasn't he? he yeah, did, he did that, and um, yeah, I mean, I mean, so I, I, yeah, so I worked for Mark for. So what did I do? I, I left the Savoy in two thousand nineteen, two thousand nineteen. Sorry, two thousand nine, and uh, I went to work for Mark at Le Caprice. Yeah. So I, I came in as a chef de party at Le Caprice. Um, and, um, yeah, I worked there for two and a half years, something like that. And then, um, Caprice Holdings opened Jay Sheiky's, which was a fish restaurant over in St. Martin's Court, which is still there now. And I went over there with, um, Tim Hughes and obviously overseen by Mark Hicks to, to be the sous chef there. So I worked there for, was, I think it was there for about six years, something like that. Was it very different to the Savoy? Yes. I mean, obviously Savoy was, um, it was classical French. I mean, it was Escoffier's kitchen. It was the the mecca of of butter, cream, foie gras, truffles, caviar. You know everything that you can think of that's expensive and 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 needs to go on a menu of that sort. And Mark was at the time um, pushing the whole modern British, which was relatively new. You know, he had Atlantic Bar doing it. Um, obviously, Ivy Caprice and Sheikis were all part of it. And obviously, Marco Pierre White was doing it as well. And it was you know it was it was that sort of era where people that had worked for Marco were then filtering into the different restaurants around the scene. So, you know, you had um, Steve and Terry up the road at Coast, you had, you know, Caprice, you had the Ivy, had all those sort of guys. And um, and and then you had the new wave that came through that, that was myself and, and my guys. And I think that, you know, the whole modern British uh, movement was basically making things with that um, incredible French traditional base, but being able to add bits in that were very traditional and, and, and unique to, to the UK. And, you know, it's, it's, it was really exciting times because there was no, there was no real, there was no scripts. There was no, you know, you sort of did what you wanted. And as long as it made sense and it, people enjoyed it, then you could put that into your, your menu. And it was great. It was a brilliant time. And, and uh, the Savoy culture was very much, you're the chef, stay in the kitchen, you're not allowed in the front of house and you're not allowed to come and eat in the restaurant. Whereas Mark and Chris Corbin, Jeremy King, who had it at the time, were very much come and eat in the restaurant, come and see what we do front of house. You know, we want to see you guys out there. You know, you, you went from someone that was sort of kept in the background to somebody who, you know, was encouraged to be part of it. And I think that 
that sort of culture shift within the kitchen as well was alien to me. And it was one that I've always adopted, you know, with, with every kitchen I've worked in since then, yeah. looking after staff, staff food, being the most important meal of the day, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It, it was great, really. It's come up quite a lot around that ability in London, I think, to innovate, because we didn't have a great reputation for food historically in the UK. And then all of a sudden, we seem to go through that period and we came out in a completely different place. And one of the things that seems to have come up is that unlike maybe the, the classic kind of French, where if you did anything too weird in, in the heartland of France, you'd be thrown out of the country and out of your industry. But because we didn't have that history, we were allowed to kind of just innovate and just be a little bit different. And those guys and right. you know, seemed to trailblaze that, which was uh, yeah. Yeah, exciting times. Presumably, though, I'm, I'm guessing that the, 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 the more Mark Hicks and the more modern approach was, was more your bag. But I guess there was a lot of actual technical skills that came up in the Savoy. That, you know, is there still stuff now that you use? Yeah, was that classic absolutely. history? Yeah, I mean, the beurre blanc that we make here, I mean, obviously we don't call it beurre blanc, we call it butter sauce. You know? yeah. it's, you know, it's exactly the same way as we used to make it back then. I mean, uh, I, did, I did every section at the Savoy and um, the, the one that sticks in my mind the most is the hot fish because uh, you'd have, so on a section you have, you have four people running one section and there was, I'm trying to count now, one, two, three, four, five, six, 12 sections, not including the pastry downstairs. And, you know, you just think about the amount of people. And one guy, their only job was making beurre blancs. And they, they probably did about 15 different beurre blancs, ranging from, you know, green, beautiful spinach and parsley to saffron to beetroot to, you know, it, it, was, it, it was just one of those things where if you, if you were gonna learn how to make a beurre blanc, that was the place to do it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's about, I think it's about those, you know, those not necessarily making it properly because I think there's lots of ways that we make things now, which, um, you know, back in the day they came out. So, so for example, hollandaise sauce. So at the Savoy, we used to have to beat the egg over a bain-marie for, for a very long amount of time until it started to come to a savion. And then you'd add your butter in and all the rest of it and pray that it didn't split. You know, nowadays everybody makes a hollandaise in a robocoop because, it's a great product, it turns out really well, it's more silky and you're less likely to have it split. And I think that, you know, there's there's always little things which the modern chef has sort of, you know, ended up with the same product. But something like a beurre blanc, I think that you can always tell the difference between one that's been made with somebody that fully understands the entire process and what they're doing and you get every single part of that, every component in that sauce when you taste it, as opposed to someone that doesn't understand it yeah. and it's quite it's very hard to describe it's, but it's it's um it's a conversation that I have quite a lot actually with a lot of chefs about taste rather than you know just you know it being that you know we, we when we're in the kitchen a lot of the young chefs you know you say to them have you tried that and they look at you and they say yes chef and you can tell on their face <laughs> they haven't tried it and so you get them to try it and then the next question is and how does it taste and these kids, you know, it, it's, it's great because the more they try it, the more they understand it. And it's about developing their palate, which is also something which I think sometimes we don't talk about as much as we used to. Yeah, definitely. that's what it used to be about. That's what it was all about your palate. It was about, you know, the flavour and about, you know, having that perfect finished product. Yeah. I don't think most people, hopefully in the industry they do, but certainly the public, very rarely do we slow down enough to actually notice what's going on in your mouth, isn't it? To actually put some food in there and slow down and actually go, right, right what's going on? Where's the acidity? Where's it all coming from? So yeah, yeah it's um, it's all too rare. Do you think the Savoy actually make that hollandaise in the old way still? Or do you think no. They... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't, well, I, I can't say that. I don't know. I don't know, but I, I, yeah. I'd be surprised. I mean, I think everybody now, 
I, but it's you know it, it's such a great product done like that now. Yeah. I mean, if I'm at home and I'm doing an eggs Benedict or Florentine or whatever for my kids, then I'll always make it on the stove. But it's just because I like to show the kids how to make it properly before we put it in the Nutribullet or Thermocube or whatever. Yeah. And I think it's you know it's it's that element as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Knowing the basics properly before they then can cheat. Yes, absolutely. Um, so con- continuing your uh, kind of trajectory, you end up in New York. What year was that, and what on earth yeah, took so you there? My um, so when I was at Sheikis, uh, my head chef. So Tim Hughes was the chef director, and Elliot Ketley was the um, head chef at the time. He uh, got um, a position within Soho House as uh, chef director, I believe it was for Soho House, New York. And um, every year, uh, Caprice used to do the um, Oscar party in LA, so for Soho House. And um, this year, Soho House has decided to do it by themselves. So I got invited out to do that party. So we spent two weeks out in California, cooking for all the stars of Hollywood and all the rest of it. And then um, while I was out there, he then offered me the position of head chef at Soho House New York. So. I did that and um, yeah, I loved it. I mean, it was it was an amazing part of my life. We, My wife is American, Erica, and uh, we lived in the West Village. So 20 minute walk to work in the morning through, you know, Greenwich and all that. And it was it was great. You know, I loved it. But um, yeah, very different out yeah. there. Very, very different. Uh, yeah. Well, is, that, is that partly true? Because I read some interesting stuff around just, just some of the differences around, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, muscles in meat was an example that I saw. Yeah. Could you just explain a couple right. of that? Yeah, so, I, I found it amazing that it was that different. So, I mean, produce obviously is a big part of, you know, we, we are all about our produce and it's all about, you know, how things are grown and produced and all the rest of it. And, and, and I think in the UK, everybody gets, as a chef, you get used to cooking. So, for example, a sirloin steak so you cook sirloin steak you know whether it's blue rare medium rare medium so on and so on when we went out there you'd cook a steak how you thought it was medium and it wouldn't be it would be like rare and I couldn't understand how I thought I was going crazy I thought that it was you know there was something going on and 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 then I went to meet you know a couple of the producers out there in in um New York State, and they was they basically expect so they feed them all on grain, and they have so much room to move around that basically it's you know it, it's one of those things where they just have more muscle. Yeah. So the more muscle mass, obviously, the 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 harder the meat, the harder the meat, the less easier it is to feel the cooking degree. Amazing. And um, it was just yeah, it was just the sheer size of these animals that made me have to had to adjust the whole way that I cooked and the way that I understood cooking meat and there was another one was it the fat content of milk or something like yeah, that yeah fat content of cream really so their heavy cream is supposed to be the same as our double cream but you can't you can't make a cream reduction sauce with it because it's not the same level of fat so we you know we we used to get sometimes British chefs coming over and you know they 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 say no 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 I want to make a cream reduction sauce and say okay but you can't use this cream because it, it doesn't reduce properly you have to put some sort of stabiliser in it and all that and they were having none of it. And the amount of times we just had to throw away sauces because it was either split or just would not reduce. I mean, it, it was great. It was interesting. I mean, you know, little things like double cream, you just assume that they're the same all around the world, but they're not. And it, it was it was an interesting time. Yeah. 
Does that lead you having to kind of you know blag your way because you'd gone in as head chef? I think that yeah. must have been a bit embarrassing, presumably, if you if you if your sauce doesn't work out. I'm a very it? I'm very quick learner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you learn fast. There weren't too many steaks thrown away. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then what motivated you? Because you weren't there a particularly long time. Were you? No. So what, what motivated you to come back? Well, I, I actually broke my foot. Oh really? I, yeah, I broke my heel bone into about five pieces, and um, it was yeah. I mean, it's one of those really ridiculous uh, freak attacks where I landed, jumped off of something, landed wrong, and ended up in hospital. Uh, you know, a crazy night in New York, and um, and yeah, that was it. Really, it was. Um, we were pregnant with um, my first son, Rex, who uh, was born out there. But you know what? It, when when you can't walk, and you know you're in a foreign land, sometimes it just makes sense to. And you got a new baby. Sometimes it just makes sense to come home. So we came back, and um, yeah, we we came back to the UK. I think it's just after about a year, and um, we uh, we moved back. Originally, I was supposed to go back to London. And I, I actually phoned Hixie to see, you know, because you always phone your connections, don't you, whenever you get back. And uh, and, and he had a few bits going on. But I am um, I I was I was actually um, also looking around the local area because we got back here just in springtime, and the south coast in springtime is the most beautiful place to be, I think, anywhere. And um, and so we thought, okay, maybe we'll spend a couple of months here, just staying with my parents to, you know, just to chill out and reassess life and see where we're at. And um, I got um, offered a position uh, as head chef at the Harbour Heights, actually. And so um, I did a short stint there before um, uh, buying the Times one day and seeing Robin Hudson standing in front of, uh, I think it was Limewood at the time, um, you know, and he was over. And I, I, I met and worked with Robin over at um, uh, Soho House, New York, because he was he was part of the, the gang out there. And... Um, so yeah, I just thought, well, that's very strange. It's a bit, a bit like fate. We've got, yeah, you know, got, he's out here. So um, so yeah, dropped him a line. He said, yeah, we've got something going on. Maybe come and have a chat. So went down there. Next thing you know, we're we're looking at you know a property in the New Forest that's uh, used to be owned by the Queen Mother's family. It's where Sir Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. It's you know beautiful sort of stately homish place with this fantastic wall kitchen garden and um. Uh, we, we were obviously opening Limewood at the time, so it, it, it had to be something that was obviously could, didn't compete with that. So, yeah, we just spent a year working on bits and pieces that we thought might be cool to put into a... Right. Were you cooking at that time at Limewood as well then? Or were you no, 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 I was, no, I was nothing to do with so, it. So basically I was, I was at uh, Whitley Ridge as it was at right. the time. And um, yeah, uh, obviously Luke was over at Limewood doing his thing. And yeah, we just, you know, we, we installed the wall kitchen garden then we decided to get some pigs, then we got some quails, then, you know, we were out every day talking to local producers and, and you know, basically just having the time of our lives, really, just discovering stuff. I mean, you know, it's like what we were talking about in the garden, you know, if, you're, if, if you enjoy what you do and you love to, to see those raw materials and, and, and allow yourself to be creative and, and put that onto a plate, you know, when you go and talk to somebody who's also passionate about what they do and, and you, you see how that could fit into your world, it's, it's amazing, really. And, and going and talking to these producers and, and having, you know, the guy in the garden just go and try that and you try it and you think, this is incredible. What could I do with this? You know, it was a real sort of eye-opener for me because before that, it was London and New York. It was pick up the phone, place your orders, they get delivered at the back door, decant them in the fridge, prep them and on the menu. Whereas now it's completely changed. It's in the garden, talking to the gardener, telling him what you want. He's cropping it, bringing it up to the garden. You're prepping it. You're, and then using it. I mean, there was no real 
storage because it couldn't sit in the fridge because it wilts. Yeah. So it was immediate. And was that the plan from when you went and spoke to Robin? Was it kind of like, did it just evolve or was it like, right, this is what I'm going to create. We're going to create the pig. We're going to roll out a few. We're going to, we're going to have a garden in each or did it just kind of happen through it? Was very a, organic. It yeah. just, yeah, just sort of evolved really. I mean, we, I mean, obviously, you know, when we, when the whole thing was being set up, you could see that it was something very special. And I think that, um, you know, we, when we opened it, we won BA High Life Award alongside Heston Blumenthal with dinner. We won the SRA Most Sustainable Restaurant Award, first ever one. Um, we won it three times, actually. We won it twice, then we lost it and we won it back. Um, we got a Katie. You know, it, it was one of those, the first sort of two, three years, it was just, you know, it was it was insane. Okay, and that was pick number one. What, what year was that? When did it open? 2011. Right. July 2011. Okay. Now there's lots of them and they all share this ethos. So for people that don't know uh, the pig group, but particularly, I suppose, the food and drink side, the restaurant yeah. side, just, just explain what that is then. So, um, so yeah, so we're a group of semi-self-sustainable hotels. We, our food philosophy is that we source 80% of everything that's on the menu from within a 25-mile radius. And then what we can't source from within that radius, we produce it ourselves. So um, there's certain things which obviously you cannot source from within. Black pepper is very difficult. Um, you know, a lot of the herb, a lot of the spices, sorry, but, you know, things like um, smoked salmon. So the smoked salmon is produced by us in our smokers, all of the pigs. Um, we have our own bees here to produce our honey. We have um, obviously everything that's in the kitchen garden, which can be anything from asparagus to oregano to curly kale. We were picking radishes this morning and lemon verbena, wild produce. We have our own mushroom houses at four of the pigs where we grow um, shiitake mushrooms, oyster mushrooms, yellow, pink oyster mushrooms, grey oyster mushrooms on compressed coffee grounds and mycelium um, bags. Uh, what else do? So, you know, so the, basically it's it's about trying to sort of show people what we do and, and understand the reasons why we do it, but at the same time supporting local producers as well as promoting local producers and working with local producers to produce what we need so our charcuterie is another classic story I mean Alan Bartlett at a pinch of salt in New Milton he was my butcher when I was a kid so I used to go to him with my parents every Saturday morning and I'd stand there getting bored out my head listening to his dad talking to my mum and my dad about what to do with this how to cook that and all the rest of it and then fast forward 20 something years and his son and I are, are you know developing British charcuterie together which is so much fun. Yeah. You know, the pigs are grown here and uh, all around the New Forest and Dorset and we're winning loads of awards with it, which is, it's lovely, isn't it? You know, it's it's a real sort of Yeah, and odd that we didn't, you know, Shakusha just used to come in from Europe and I suppose I when we didn't we didn't really eat it. I don't know what, I, I was chatting to, I interviewed um, Capriolus about this as well, yeah. with some of their rare breed kind of charcuterie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, fascinating. I guess some of it was climate. It was just easier to, to, to dry stuff, you know, over in the heat of Europe. Yeah. But it's another one, I think, where we're, we're innovating and we're finding some really good charcuterie and it's brilliant yeah. for the restaurateurs now who, you know, share your, your yeah. passion for want to buy local and now that we can get yeah, really good cured meats. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's I mean, exciting. I, I judged the World uh, Charcuterie Award, well, the UK Charcuterie Awards uh, this year, and part of that process was visiting all the different producers. I mean, I was up in the White Valley, then we went to Cotswolds, we went to Shropshire, went all around. And it's also very interesting to see how different people have a different view on what they think charcuterie should be about, you know, whether it's the Spanish style, Italian style, French style, you know, whatever it is. And 
the, the, the common denominator was was that everybody who produced it was passionate about it. They wanted to show you everything that they did. And, and when you gave them praise, they, you know, it was, it, it, you could see it was very personal to them. And, and that's, that's what I think is so great about it. You know, going back to what you were saying about France, you know, where you're sort of locked into depending on where you produce it. You know, here we can do whatever we want. And as long as we don't call it something which has got a protection mark on it, it's, it's, it's very unique. I mean, cheese is another example. I mean, we went up to, um, years ago, we went up to um, Simon Rogan's place up in um, Cumbria, up there. And uh, we went to a cheese shop next door, British cheese shop. And the guy was telling us the history of cheeses. And he said, before the war, we were the largest cheese producing country in Europe. Obviously, the war affected us because we lost a lot of our cheese producers and makers. But now we are actually in the right trajectory to be the biggest cheese producers in Europe. And I think we're almost there if not already there i mean it's you know it's another one of those where we can produce amazing camembert style cheeses we can produce you know all these incredible cheeses where if you're living elsewhere in the world you can't actually you know not yeah. the world but maybe in france or, or, or europe call them what you want to call them and i think it's it's a really exciting time for british produce and british producers when it comes to that thing yeah it is you're right because as a, as a kid i always thought you know remember my dad loved his cheeses but it was always the french it was always you know your breeze and your camembert and stuff like that uh, i interviewed um that's going out this week actually so blue vinny uh, cheese and, yeah. uh, and the history of that and um kerry from uh, brinkworth dairy about her yeah. cheeses and what's fascinating is you've only got to go kind of like six or seven miles down the road and it's a completely different kind of approach and that's right. but what's there is, is the quality you know the pedigree herds that kerry was using you know 100 year old pedigree frisian herd yeah. you know eating beautiful kind of clover and, and grasses that impacts ultimately on the cheese we do have yeah this incredible variety i suppose because yeah. of our because of our climate um right. yeah and that and that lack of tradition although in many ways we're just going back with our tradition and with what's happening with with brexit kind of you know seeing us it's got nearly halfway through before we mentioned that word but seeing us stand <laughs> proud yeah and it's yeah. the same in you know we're taking on the french with champagne we're producing yeah. beautiful english wine finally aren't yeah. we and craft beer back you know yeah I remember when the guys at work started importing, um, was it wasn't uh, cider? I think it was from Scandinavia, and all of a sudden it all started appearing on the bar. And I'm like, man, we've been making cider oh, for you know thousands, certainly hundreds yeah. of years. So, yeah. uh, so how does it happen? So, as well as all the stuff you, you grow, and you've just shown me around your garden, and you know we're very lucky. What we're in July, so it's yep. it's beautiful now. The sun's out. You've got a huge amount of produce, which is fantastic. So it does look stunning. And I think you know how exciting that must be as a chef. And we'll come back to to, to new chefs coming into the industry in a minute. Um, but also foraging, something that you do quite a lot. So, yeah. so I guess not every then is grown you just talk to me a little bit about that yeah i mean we so when i was a kid um we grew up on the edge of the new forest and and um we used to go out with my father and we'd go out uh looking for mushrooms and and, and all sorts and it was it was one of those times when i think when you were kids obviously i think you just really wanted to get us out into the fresh air instead of sitting in front of the sega mega drive all day but it was um it was a very fun time in my life because Yes, we used to mess around a lot, and yes, it was basically a walk, but at the end of it, it was something that it was like, you know, unveiling your goodie bag full of, you know, mushrooms, and there wasn't really any real issue with picking them back in the day, and it was it was great. I mean, we used to do risottos and omelettes and all sorts of stuff with the things that we find. I mean, he was always a bit overcautious. If I think back now, he threw away quite a few that we could have eaten, but we didn't want to risk it back then. But, you know, now foraging has always been a big part of my life my kids go out foraging with me and and it's not just about finding you know those those free 
you know, foods, it's also about the health benefits. I mean, things like sea beet and sea purslane. I mean, there's so much iron and vitamin C packed into those leaves that it's actually very good for you. I mean, you know, cave memories and that stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's something which you don't get from cultivated um, uh, plants. So in order for me to be able to, to show people how great it tastes and how good it is for you, we have to go out and grab it. And there's some places you can go. We've got a forager uh, in Brockness called Gary Everly. Um, we did a book with him and it's, it's great, you know, great story. The guy used to work on um, uh, fishing trawlers, you know, sort of post-war, uh, got off the fishing trawler and the guy that he used to fish with, which was an older gentleman uh, who'd grown up during, you know, the wartime, didn't have any real sort of, uh, you know, ways to eat, he used to walk back and because he'd grown up from, from eating wild produce, you know, when obviously rations were on, he carried on and they used to walk back and they just go in the hedgerows and take bits and pieces walking back from the ships. And, and it was quite an interesting story, actually. And, and that's how he learned. And I mean, the, he's an amazing bloke. He has the most incredible amount of knowledge on wild plants. And then here we have a guy called Giuseppe, who, uh, who equally is just as incredible. And um, yeah, they basically go out, they have their spots that they're legally allowed to, you know, pick there. And then we showcase that on the menu. Yeah, amazing. Because your average person, I think one would be interested and would love it. I mean, who doesn't want to take their kids out and actually show them where food comes from? But yeah. most people just wouldn't have a clue where to start, would they? What you yeah. can eat and what you can't eat. So oh, yeah. Um, the, how, how do you learn that? Is it? Well, I mean, Gary says this. What does he say? He always says, you can eat any, everything once. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, so okay. make sure that, That's great advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, there is obviously um, a lot of poisonous uh, mushrooms out there, but saying that there's more poisonous plants than there are poisonous mushrooms. So it is a real bit of a minefield, but I mean, I, I, I know how to forage quite well. I wouldn't say that I'm an incredible expert, but I do think I know quite a lot. And what I do is I stick to what I know. And then anything I don't know, I take a picture and I send it to Gary. And, you know, it, it is, you know, you hear a lot of horror stories. There's been people that have had all sorts of nasty issues. I mean, there's people that have eaten things that they thought was your rolls and they're dead the next day because their kidneys have shut down. And so, you know, it is a bit of a, it's a dangerous thing, but once you know, yeah. it's very easy to identify. Okay, so you know. that sort of clarifies the advice wasn't just try it once then. Uh, no. Maybe, maybe, maybe <laughs> double check first if, yeah. if death is a yeah, concern. Yeah, Do exactly. you run courses on it? Uh, yeah, so Gary does walks at um, the Pig and Brockenhurst right. and um, yeah, we don't do anything here, but Brock's the main place where we do it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we we we, uh, we 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 treat that we teach our apprentices so they do a lot of so we do a lot of in-house training right but yeah so um back to the guy every every venue's got its own garden they yep. all grow slightly different stuff is that is that presumably partly down to the climate but is there a head garden or each venue that can also decide the kind of stuff they want to grow or do the chefs in which way around is it does the gardener say i'm growing this or does the chef say please grow me that yeah so ollie hudson's the guy in charge of all the gardens and then he has his head gardeners under that um, we basically have our seed plan meetings, excuse me, seed plan meetings um, every year. So we will sit down and we will go through what we planted the previous year, what we think we want to change, what worked, what didn't work, change up. And it's, it's basically, it's give and take, you know, that there'll be some things that the chefs really want the gardeners to grow. And there'll be some things that the gardeners really want to grow to see if the chefs can use it. So um, yeah, we have our, we have our standard, range and then we have the exciting stuff that we sort of tack onto it does that mean the menus are different at every venue as well yes yeah so the, the we have a few dishes that stay on so we have uh, my smoked salmon the charcuterie tomahawk chop a few you know standards across the group but the the head chefs are responsible for their own menus and then 
I'm obviously responsible for their decisions. So it's um it's I work very close with them to basically try all of their dishes, which then do or don't make it onto the menu. But I mean, for example, here it's mainly fish, being where we are. You know, we've got uh, uh, lobster just gone on the menu. Jeff Milner who literally lands them just over there. You know, those came on when was it a couple of days ago? We've got oysters just gone on today. You know, it's 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 what you'd expect to be eating sitting here looking at the sea. You know, from from the restaurant. But if you look at Bath, we've got our own herd of deer there. So venison and game and all that uh, features quite heavily. Um, but this time of year. Their garden is about four times the size of that one. Wow. So they've got the most incredible um, range of produce coming out. So they are, they're full steam ahead with the kitchen garden. Um, uh, Brockenhurst is sort of a mix of both, sea and and forest. And then, um, yeah, we have the one down in uh, Coombe in Devon, which is a good mix again. So really, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit about location, but also, you know, because we're driven by the garden, they're also driven by... The seasons. I mean, it's quite funny actually when you, you know, for me, when I'm going around all the different properties, you can sort of see, you know, what's coming in the garden by exactly what's on the menu. And these guys can change the menu whenever they want. We don't print for two months or one month or whatever. We print menus every single day and every single day they can change the dishes if they want to, right. as long as they're within our pig remit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. That's uh, logistically that's quite a challenge in a, in a restaurant, it is. I think, isn't it? That causes yeah. you know problems with that. even just for your front of house team actually knowing what's on the menu and the training and stuff. So something that sounds so easy, but actually as a restaurateur, I appreciate the the work that goes in behind yeah. the scenes to make that run fluidly. So this morning when I came in this morning, the the our apprentice was there making um uh, uh what's it called marigold petal uh, pappardelle. So basically, we, we suspend marigold petals in the ribbons of pasta. And, uh, and and I could see him making it, and I thought, I wonder if that's going to go out to the restaurant. And as I came through from the meeting I had before this, uh, the restaurant was bringing the dish back into the kitchen after they tried it. And that, for me, just shows that they're completely on top. And, but like you say, you know, every morning meeting, every briefing in the restaurant, every uh, morning meeting that the managers have and all that, it's not just about what's going on in the hotel and what's going on with the, with the, with the rooms the biggest part is what's going on in the restaurant and who's selling this and do they know the new dishes? Have they tried it? Because how many times you sit down and say, what do you recommend? They say so. We say, have you tried it? And say, yes. <laughs> you know, we want our, our our front of house to be able to confidently say yes and whether or not they liked it. I mean, that's that's a big part of, of, of it. But when it's moving at that pace, every day is a training day, essentially. Yeah. Do you grow asparagus, by the way? Yeah, we've got some you in do. there. Yeah, I, say, I always give the example to, to my team, uh, partly on seasonality, but partly on that, you know, when people come in and say, you know, what should I have? And I'm like, look, the asparagus season is so small. Yeah. 10 weeks, whatever yeah. it is that it's beautiful for, and the rest of the time we're importing it from wherever it might be. Yeah. But the fact also it takes a 1,000 days to grow it from seed. That's I'm right. like, three yeah. years to wait, yeah. and then you've got it for 10 weeks. And that, for me, is yeah, when we started trying to try our, grow our, our own stuff, was just to get the front half team to be excited. So when yeah. you come and sit down, and you go, oh, you know, can you recommend anything? And then they go, well, no, not really. You go, recommend the bloody asparagus. Know, it's kind of like you've got, there's four weeks left. You should yeah. be buzzing. You should be jumping yeah. out of your chair yeah. and going, you've got four weeks left to enjoy this asparagus. Yeah. This normally when I'm doing my training and the team sort of switch off and go, oh my God, he's, <laughs> he's actually insane. We, we, um, we actually, I, I mean, I, I, we'll go in the garden after this again and have a look, but sometimes, you know, when it sprouts up the first time, yeah. before it goes into fern, you get these little asparagus beans, which are like the shoots off of the main shoot. So obviously after you've harvested it, for a bit, you then got to let the plant grow and, and put the energy back into the root. But you get these tiny little mini 
like asparagus uh, uh, shoots. And so we try and get a second harvest off of it, which we use as garnishes and in salads and stuff like that. But I think sometimes they're stronger than the actual spears themselves. Wow. And they look cool as well. You know, You're the just... first person, is, uh, this is the longest swear conversation I've ever uh, had. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> normally my team are like, oh, he's off, I'm going to go and get a coffee. So I'm going to get even more ge- ge- geeky now. I know there's a child of asparagus, yeah, which, yeah. Is, uh, yeah. which is even better. Um, so that, that kind of brings me into, I suppose, the, the challenge around recruitment and finding chefs that believe this. So I, you know, employ, I'm not, not necessarily hundreds, but probably a hundred chefs over the years. Um, and there's lots of chefs that, that love the taste of food. You know, they, they love putting nice food on the plate, but actually finding them that, that even care enough, certainly on the sustainability angle, which we'll come on to. I remember a conversation with a chef once around fish and he said, it's God's choice if there's any fish in the sea. And I was like, well, actually, I, I think we can have an impact on that. So finding chefs that you know, A, care, I suppose, about where the stuff comes from, but B, um, you know, actually to the point where they're willing to go out into the garden and to change the menu and stuff. Are you, are you having yeah. to do a lot of that training in-house or, you know, how are you finding people that, that do yeah, that? Yeah, so, uh, when was it, about five years ago. So I, uh, we spoke earlier, so I'm a member of the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts and we have our, um, uh, what's it called, Specialised Chef Programme. And I always took on apprentices um, from them. One year, uh, I suddenly realised that I hadn't spoken to them early enough and I wasn't going to get an apprentice. So I was sort of sat there in the office going, what am I going to do? So I spoke to my pastry chef, I spoke to a few people and we decided that we were going to start our own pig apprenticeship. And I think one of the things that that, that struck me was when you do an apprenticeship, you're obviously governed by what the government think you should be learning and also by what the establishment is going to train you when you're in there. And And I think... You know, I, I, I did a bit of research and, and it was sort of quite apparent that everything that we did here was currently not being taught on any sort of government um, platform. And and because we were lucky that we have what we have here, we were actually in, in a prime opportunity, you know, prime place and prime position to actually teach young people how how we think chefs should 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 be working and, and, and how they should be thinking. So we set up the pig apprenticeship. Um, we've now got, I think, 20 apprentices. Um, we've got five that have graduated. Um, Joseph, who's in the kitchen here, is uh, 18. He just graduated with distinction across all of his um, his exams, and he came second in the UK Apprenticeship Awards this year. And, you know, he's, he's a young man who came to us. He said about three or four words, yes, no, thank you. You know, that was about it. And, and he's now possibly one of the strongest chefs we have in our group because it's I think you know when you take young people who understand what you're trying to teach them and they have a natural interest in in what you're talking about then it doesn't become a job does it it becomes something which is like a hobby or fun or something that you can that that you can do that isn't a chore and I think that you know, any chef that I know that is as passionate about food as I am is somebody who will sit there for hours talking about work or food or their job or producers or what they had to eat the night before. And those are the people which, you know, you kind of want. Now, the tricky thing is there's not tons of those around. And um, so there's two ways to do it. One is finding the right person. The other one is to instill that passion into people. So even if we have a young kid that comes to us and he's never tried you know, a piece of asparagus, you know, or, or never, you know, never eaten game or, or something like that. What we do is we, we expose that person to that world 
and and we basically educate them into the reasons why we use that and the reasons why we grow that and all the rest of it and then it's up to them to decide whether or not that's going to be a part of their life and and it has a massive amount of success you know all of our apprentices so far are really really intelligent kids you know maybe they didn't do amazingly well academically at school but you know that they you talk to them about food they understand the process they understand everything that you've taught them they they work hard they you know they, they, they just love talking about what, you know, what they do. And it's not just the apprentices. I'm talking about all of our chefs. You know, I think we've been very lucky within our group. I mean, I was saying to you earlier, all of our head chefs, most of our head chefs were part of the original team, you know, that when we opened the original pig. And it's, you know, I think that when, when you're surrounded by people like that who have that same amount of passion, it, it just becomes fun. Mm. And, you know, the, the meeting I had this morning was a menu meeting. And it's such a joy when you come and you look at the menu and you think, you know, we sat on that ferry coming over and think, they better have oysters on today because I'm just going past, you know, the Brown Sea Island. I hope they have the lobsters on because I know that they're pulling them out now. I really pray that they've got the veal on because Jurassic Coast veal is incredible. You know, the, the, the uh, I mean, the list goes on. Crab, you know, if you came here and we haven't got crab on the menu, then we're really doing something wrong, yeah. you know. So it's, yeah, I think what I'm trying to say is, the next generation of chefs that I've found tend to be kids who um, want to learn. You know, back in the day, it was about working in lots of different kitchens and lots of different places to gain experience. But if you can come to a place and you can gain experience from all different directions that you never thought was possible, then you're going to stay there longer. Hmm. And someone said to me the other day, they said, you know, we, we, I went to a, uh, an interview at school and we were talking, I was talking to the headmaster and he said, oh yeah, but you know, not everybody wants to be a chef. And I said, yeah, they might not want to be a chef, but if you can get them excited in hospitality, you know, there's so many different avenues. I mean, how many people wake up in the morning and go, I want to be a cheesemonger? Probably not many, but the amount of people that, you know, got into hospitality and got excited about food or went into an avenue and then learnt about cheese and found that that was their passion, you know, they'd never found that avenue unless they'd got into our into our um, industry and I just think that you know it's very easy to label people within our hospitality sector but in actual fact I think if you can say that you can produce someone who can cook who can talk about produce who can make cheese who can make charcuterie who can tell you everything you need to know about beekeeping who can tell you how to keep chickens who can tell you the life you know expectancy of, 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 of a pig and what weight you should take it to before you turn it into lardo I mean you know, that's the sort of person that you'd want working for you. And that's what we're trying to create. We're trying to create young, intelligent people who love what they do and cook because they want to cook. Yeah. No, I think it's it's such an exciting industry because everybody yeah. fundamentally eats and drinks. And, yeah. and it's a shame that the industry is changing in some ways, I think, but still has a reputation, with parents at least, that it's yeah. a stopgap and you're not going to do it for long. Absolutely. But actually the opportunities are, are phenomenal and the speed of, of potential promotion is phenomenal because you don't need a, a kind of, you know, an academic background, albeit you, you do need... Well, I think it's better to understand where food comes from. And, and sort of staying on that slightly, so the... I think we've got a responsibility to know where our food comes from, and I don't think all restaurants do that. I think yep. there's 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 prawns being imported from Vietnam and Thailand. They're all yep. stuffed full of antibiotics and grown in these big vats. There's mm -hmm. chickens coming in from Thailand. They're all injected with saline solutions. You know, there's all this stuff going on that people don't appreciate. And I find too many chefs who don't care, who just kind of you know make the food, and and they're obviously not the guys that you and I want to work with. But this disconnect. But the other one that that sort of bugs me a bit is is the nutritional kind of concept, and that seems to be changing 
changing hugely now, I suppose, is that do we have a responsibility as chefs who, who understand food more than your average kind of person on the street? You mentioned earlier with regard foraging and you mentioned some of the kind of, uh, that there's more um, nutrients or whatever it was in some of the stuff you get than cultivated. What's your thoughts with the government kind of talking about putting calories on menus? Yeah, do, do we have a responsibility to, to try and educate people, not just about taste and flavour, but also about what people should and shouldn't be eating from a kind of, you know, uh, either good of the earth or good of your body? I think that's two separate. Yeah, so um, I think good of the earth, yes, 100%. And that's that's why on the back of our menus, you can see all the producers, where it's grown, and, and promoting the people who we have been to visit, who we know are doing exactly what they say on the tin. And, and we can say to you, we're serving you this from this person because we've been there, we know they're doing it properly, and you're going to get the best quality produce that you've had here. That's, that's why we do that. I think with regards to telling people, you know, calories and all the rest of it, in my mind, and this is purely my own, is it's kind of a nanny state thing. I mean, you know, people, if you go out and you eat in a big chain and you have a burger every single night that is, you can see that it's not good quality meat and you can, you can see the fat, you know, if you do that every night, it doesn't matter how many how many how many calories you put on that menu. That person's still going to go and eat that burger. And I think I think as response, you know, we should be responsible for telling people what's in it. Hundred percent. I think you know people who are on special diets they should know the calories. I think that that all that information should be available. But printing it on the menus, I mean, it's I don't know. It's it's that's a real sort of tricky thing for me. Mm. Uh, I think that you know. With, with with what we do here, I would hope that people trust us to make sure that what we're cooking for them is 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 one, you know, it's the best produce you can get and also it's not gonna be, you know, something that's gonna cause them illness or anything like that. I mean it's yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that. It's very tricky. Yeah, I share the sort of, yeah, slight fence because my concern is I, I, I get, you know, that that we need to kind of, you know, worry about uh what we're giving people as an industry but i think yeah. the the challenge uh is that we we over regulate to the point that that you know good food chefs make good food good restaurants yeah. make good food they use good quality produce and yeah. they might tweak a dish you know they're going to taste it we'll go back to palate and you might go you know what that needs a little bit more salt or it needs a little bit more butter or it needs a little bit more asparagus or whatever it might yeah. be and we change it and if you if the only way to manage allergens and, and the government becomes over regular regulation orientated you end up with food that's just made in a factory and that can't be the answer so i think sometimes we come up with the wrong solution to the problem there's yeah. clearly a problem around obesity and diabetes yes exactly but the solution isn't make everything in a factory no and and, and i think but i think allergies where separate, I mean, you know, I, I live, my wife is allergic to shellfish and, you know, we, we live in this world where, you know, rightly so, you, you have to say, say, you know, any allergens that are on the menu, I think that's, that's hugely important. I mean, if you look at, you know, what sort of happened in the past with people neglecting that, I mean, it's just horrific. But, you know, I think that, you know, people can see that that's, you know, that's obviously highlighted. But I think as far as like calories on menus, I mean, you know, if I, if I go out one night and I have a burger, I know that I've had a burger that week. I'm probably not going to have a burger the next day. I might have a salad or I might have, you know, spinach or whatever. But, you know, I think that it's, I think it's about, it's, it's, just, it's, it's about knowledge. I mean, we do this thing as well, uh, the Chef's Adopter School program, where we go into schools and we talk to young children about the importance of healthy eating. And, and this is, this is sometimes what gets me is that, you know, kids of a certain age, they're obviously fed what their parents feed them. And the amount of kids that we talk to at these classes that don't know what a leak is or a celeriac or 
you know, something like a, you know, a, a red onion or, they, you know, we take in, you know, little mobile gardens and they don't know what, you know, a spinach leaf is or so, you know, it, there's basic um, produce that I think kids should know what it is. And if they don't know what it is, it means they're either not eating it or their parents aren't buying it. So what are they eating? And I think that, you know, if we can give the kids the right knowledge to say that they don't want to eat that stuff, they want to eat this stuff, then we're heading in the right direction. But it's all, I think it's all to do with knowledge. And I think people need to take a bit more interest in what they're eating. I don't think it's just about calorie counting. I think it's about people understanding what it is they're eating and being able to make an educated decision whether or not they're eating a burger that night that's a thousand calories or, or, or a salad, which is, you know, 50. I think, I think that's, it's, it's, it's more about education in my mind. I think that, you know, we, we need to, we need to get people understanding that, you know, life's not about food that's produced by large companies that, that just put rubbish in there so that they can make a, a big profit. It's about people who, who are cooking out of love and cooking out of understanding and cooking because they know that you're going to enjoy that meal. And, and, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's food that's produced by large businesses and large companies and foods that's produced by people who actually care. And I think that that's, that's where, as a country and as a nation, we need to understand the difference. Because I think at the moment we don't really, there's too much of a, a grey line. You know, you think you're going somewhere that, that the food is going to be one way and sometimes you get there and it, you can tell it's all been bought in and processed. And it's, it's another way. And I think it's about being able to understand the difference, really. Mm-hmm. Are you noticing a change um, in the last couple of years around more vegetarian food, plant-based food, all that kind of stuff? And what's your thoughts on that? I think it's great. I mean, again, um, when I was a kid, we never ate meat every day. You know, we never ate meat every day. We'd have it two or three times a week, you know. And and, um, I think as a nation now, we... We've sort of we are now in a sort of slightly position where everybody thinks I need to eat meat every single day and and obviously you can't really because how is this meat being produced if we eat meat every single day it's it's obviously being produced on a mass sort of basis but here we 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 used to do a separate vegan and vegetarian menu which we scrapped and now on our menu we have our literally picked uh, um, uh, section so it's uh, six twelve dishes. One side is vegan, one side is vegetarian. It's all produce that's either been picked or prepared from local farms or from our gardens, and you can have it in small or large. And if, you, if you're vegan and you want the veggie, we will adapt it so that the whole thing is interchangeable. So although they're separate dishes, we, we, will, we will basically chop and change as you wish to create something that, that is actually a great reflection of what we do, a great taste of what, what is actually good at this time of year and something which is pleasing to, to vegans and vegetarians because you know, I, I don't even think it's as black and white as vegans and vegetarians anymore. I mean, the amount of kids that I talk to when I'm either at universities or college or at school or whatever, it's a lot of them are more flexitarians, if, if anything else. Sometimes they just want to eat vegan, depending on what's on the menu. Sometimes they just will have veggie. And, and some of the kids say, if I know where that food's come from, if I know how that animal's been raised, I will eat meat. And, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, hardcore vegans, you know, they didn't touch anything. But now I think that whole thing is sort of morphed into a into a sort of, um, you know, a, a generalisation. And, and I think that it's it's becoming more and more prominent. My daughter went out the other night and ordered a vegan dish and she's she's 10 years old. And it wasn't because of anything other than she'd like the look of it on the menu. And I think that that's great. You know, if, if, if people and, and if we're producing food that, that works... And, and you know people enjoy it and it looks great then 
I, yeah, I, I don't think when it, when it first started, I think all chefs were up in arms. Ah, vegans, vegetarians, it's going to be a nightmare. But in actual fact, it's just evolving. I think it's great. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to child obesity and all that sort of stuff, you know, the more kids are eating healthy, whether it's vegan or vegetarian, the better, really. Mm. No, I, 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 yeah. that answer is, is, is exactly my perspective. And it's been another interesting conversation with chefs where, as I've learned, you know, I didn't come on, on planet Earth to kind of make people unhealthy and make them ill. And I've had guests that, you know, come in for a full English every day. And I'm like, I feel bad. I'm like, you know, I didn't I didn't come to set up a restaurant to make you die of bloody, you know, coronary heart disease at the age of 50. Uh, so it's been interesting as I've kind of gone on that journey. And I, and I share that for me, the most important thing is where food comes from. But I think the, the traditional vegan market did a disservice to partly to nutrition because they were very politicized, very angry. Uh, so partly to nutrition and, and uh, yeah, partly to, um, to just, you know, where our food comes from um, but it's been fascinating to, to see that change but I'm still struggling still not seeing many chefs who have caught up on that I, I, I'm having the conversation a little more and actually by forcing them into it you know uh, you know Quentin my head chef you know and it's been fascinating and actually he's, he's really enjoyed once we said look we, we really want to focus on this it's definitely a shift this isn't a fad you know it's been going on for a couple of years now and the trajectory is even more actually yeah. when they start getting into you know what you can do with a with a sort of black bean quinoa beetroot lentil kind of burger and they start mm. adding some spices and some flavour and you bite into it and you go oh my god actually that that burger yeah. punches it's different but it's actually got more flavor more stuff going on than your traditional kind of you know cheese and bacon so yeah, yeah it's i mean but i mean also we kind of you know i mean you walk into that garden you know today you walk to, if, if, they cannot produce, yeah. if they cannot produce anything that's got non-meat in it with all the stuff in it, then you know we've got a real problem really yeah, but 100%. you know this this is a this is the other thing is that you know when i eat non you know plant-based food i want to be able to taste you know the vegetable or whatever it is that, that's in there and like you just said you know if if, it, if it's a great product and if it tastes great then it doesn't matter if it's got meat or not it's it's about the enjoyment of eating that plate of food and the flavor and, and the, the experience you're getting from it yeah i had a great chat with helen browning from uh, the soil association who um uh, credit organic farming and had a yeah. really good chat with her who fundamentally you know is an organic farmer but with a lot of meat and pigs she loves her pigs yeah uh, but also actually you know in that role had a responsibility to look at how do we feed 10 billion people on planet earth without destroying it exactly. and even she and she said it's difficult i'm in a contradictory position because i'm saying to people eat less meat eat better meat but actually yeah we you know we do need to eat more plants if we're going to be able to feed everybody on the planet which yeah. wasn't making her the most popular with her kind of you know farming colleagues but actually it's just about doing it right it's not rocket science and it's like you say you know if you have a burger every day, every day it's unhealthy and we know if we eat meat every day we're going to be growing it in a way that's not good for the for the animals and, uh, exactly. and all that jazz so sustainable restaurant association you mentioned and, and yep. people like that you know didn't exist 10 15 years ago so clearly it's become more important to the industry mm -hmm. what else do you guys do apart from the food you buy you have a great reputation for your ethos you said you won three or four years SRA yeah yep. what's the other things apart from where your food comes from so uh so obviously we work with local schools so we have our um chefs adopt school program so all of my head chefs we go into primary schools and secondary schools and we talk to kids about healthy so we actually do little um we set up little workshops so going back to what I was saying about flavor you know we, we have the kids there trying different things tasting it they, they have we run competitions we actually do three little jelly pots where we we, we actually do uh so you have say like a red a green and a yellow jelly pot and the red will be lemon flavor the green will be black currant and you know so it's different flavors for different colors it's trying to get the kids to try stuff and, and, and understand it we do uh trips so we have we have uh year five and six down here cooking pizzas in the wood oven planting broad beans and having lots of fun it's, it's, it's about community we do uh, our smoke sun cut events so we do uh, music events where we have uh, street food and and um, live bands and we get 
local universities and stuff involved and we bring all the chefs together in one place and we basically have a big old party and it's uh, that's another thing that we do um what else to do i'm trying to think i mean it's you know for us it's i think we do a lot but but at the same time you know we, we try to make sure that everything we do we do it well and i think that um you know that's that's always been our thing really and you know the the whole the whole building the next generation is something that, that I think is our biggest sort of focus at the moment because, you know, we, we, you know the situation with chefs at the moment, it's, it's increasingly difficult to, to sort of find good quality staffing these days. And, and I think it's, you know, we just want to sort of create something where young people can come and actually see what we're doing and, 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 and think that's what I'm interested in. And maybe even if they come here and they start off in the kitchen and then they do like two weeks in the garden and decide they want to be a gardener, we want to be able to, to actually put that person in a place where they want to work and keep them working for us, even if it's in a different department. That's that's yeah. our sort of ethos. Yeah, it's nice there's no barriers to entry. I think we get such a uh, eccentric, decent bunch of human beings coming to hospitality yeah. who don't necessarily have that academic background, but it just leads to this creative, buzzy kind of energy yeah. compared to working in a bank and... But I mean, yeah, but this is, I mean, actually I was talking the other day to somebody and they were saying about how, you know, with the new sort of um, qualification within catering, um, you know, from chef's point of view, you need C's to get into into that sort of course. And I think what's kind of happening as well is that back in the day, if you want to be a chef, you knew you want to be a chef, but now there's so much open to young people. There's so many opportunities, you know, that, that the world as we know it, you know, thanks to technology and all that sort of stuff is completely changed you know from when when I was looking at what I wanted to do and I think there is kind of that element where if you're projected to get C's you know you can do anything from that you go on to do A levels you can do you know there's, there's so many different avenues open to you as well and I think that you know we, we get a lot of young people actually that have, that have gone off done their A levels started a few courses at, at university and then actually thought well, I don't really want to do this you know I actually quite like doing that, whether it's working behind the bar, doing mixology, being in the kitchen or whatever it is. And so we, we actually run another course on the front called the BE's Budding Entrepreneur um, course, which uh, Robin Hudson set up. And he basically brings in these young people who have literally just come back to us to, to apply for a job. We identify them as people who could be, you know, fast track to, to, to junior management. And then he basically, um, you know, it's like a mentorship. So they get put with us and, different directors through the company to basically learn about the business. It's like a crash course. I think it's amazing, really. I mean, we, we've had so many of our newer managers now that started off as people that dropped out of university and come into hospitality just for a weekend job and then have shown a bit of, you know, a spark that it's great. Yeah. You know, that's, that's another interesting part to our industry. You know, yes. how many places back in the, you know, take on university dropouts and then can boost them up to a managerial role within the yeah. space of a few years. I think that that's, that's also something that, you know, within our sector, I think we're, we're very versatile. We're very, we're very, you know, we can adapt and, 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 and see something as somebody which you can then nurture and, 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 and create. I think that's, that's such a beautiful thing that, that within the hospitality industry we can do. Which I don't think you can do in, in many other. No, and I think it's nice that in a, in a world dominated by technology, fundamentally hospitality, you know, eye contact and a smile and a bit of yeah. personality, isn't it? And and Absolutely. it's a human skill, and that yeah. and that human skill shouldn't be lost. And and 
you know, we're clearly not losing it its entirety, but there's a significant number of people managing their relationships from behind a screen and a keyboard. And, and I, yeah. I get bloody excited about the fact that as an industry, we, we are the opposite. We get yeah. people around a table, we break bread, we drink some wine, right. we look them in the eye. And it doesn't matter whether that's you and your family coming in to eat or it's the team we're looking after you. It's fundamentally the classic kind of point of being yeah. a human being, I suppose. Exactly. So. I mean, that goes back to the kids. You know, we say in the classroom, how many kids eat around a table? Yeah. There's not many. Yeah. You know, and, and I think this is, you know, I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously I'm in, you know, this is what I do. And, and I love sitting down with my family around a table and having a meal. And, and it's where there's no phones, there's no tablets, there's no iPads, no nothing. And the kids have to, yeah, they don't have to, but they, they talk, don't they? And naturally you talk about your day, you talk about what you've been up to. Hopefully if there's any issues, you can talk that. And, and I just think it's such a great opportunity to be able to, you know, just just connect with your family, and and it's sad to think that that doesn't happen really as much as it should. Yeah, no, I I agree one hundred percent, and I think the, the tragedy of being in hospitality is that even even the simplest meal at home, I'm kind of like you know some music on, there's a candle lit, even the beans on toast has been presented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. I drive my wife nuts. She's like, it's just the sobbing kids' dinner. I'm like, come on, darling, it's kind of what I do all day. Every Make day. an effort. Uh, she's she's yeah, she's given up whinging about it uh, now. To be fair, so I think. You know, it's the first time we've met properly, um, but I've kind of watched what you do with the pig, and I, and I always look on. I always think, God, man, if I if I had unlimited resources, I think what you guys do is brilliant. I would love, you know, my business, your your kitchen gardens, everything you do is phenomenal. It looks like an incredible job. You know, you've stayed here uh, a long time. Uh, it, it's brilliant. With everything that you do and all of those opportunities, which bit of your role gives you the most sort of excitement and pleasure on a day to day basis? Because I can't choose one. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. that's a difficult question. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I mean, all that, all of it. I mean, you know, it, obviously, I love working with the, sh- you know, at the end of the day, I'm a chef. I, I, I've, I've cooked my whole life. I've, I've worked behind the stoves. Um, my whole job has, is, is sort of, you know, grown and expanded, and I, I'm still in the kitchen with the chefs. You know, working with them, trying food developing recipes, writing menus every single time I'm at a property. So fundamentally that is my, that's what I love to do. I love to work with the guys who, who, you know, cook and produce amazing things. But on top of that, you know, as, as my position has sort of expanded, you know, being able to look after the apprentices and take them to bread courses and show them how to make cheese and all that sort of stuff. I think the educational side is also become something that has become very personal to me and, and and being able to see young kids that I'd met you know at school doing a demo to pass out with distinction you know three years later and, and and actually you know grow from these sort of very young teenagers to, to 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 men who can hold themselves on a section and and you know produce food that you know you'd be proud to serve to anybody you know that that is something that gives me massive job satisfaction mm. and and I think that you know it's very hard not to yeah it's very hard to pinpoint a piece part of my job that I love but those are my two biggest things you know it's all about um, teamwork you know the food the taste and also the progression of because at the end of the day I, I truly believe that you only get out of your industry and get out of life what you put into it and you know for if you don't you know, all these people oh we don't have any chefs oh we don't have this we don't have that if you don't do something about it if you don't you know do your little bit for it it's never going to change because you know it's like it's like the the kitchen environment you know everybody back in the day was very shouty very violent very hot very long hours that's what it was about now it's not 
It's, it's, you know, you work your 48 hours, we pay overtime, we make sure that that's a good environment. They have a great quality of life. If, if, you know, if you treat your staff right and, and, and they feel that they are part of the team rather than just an employee, then they'll stay with you and they'll work hard for you. And, and I think that, you know, that is the way now I see um, hospitality going. You know, gone are the days of the chef dragging someone into the fridge. You know, it's about, you know, teaching, nurturing and, 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 and basically retention because at the end of the day, you want to be able to trust your staff. And if your staff don't trust you, then you're not going to get that. And I think that's, that's, that's part of, I think, of, of my generation. I think we saw what went on back in the day. You know, we saw how the kitchens were run. And I think, you know, a lot of my friends now, whether they're in London or, or out in the country now, they all don't want to run their kitchens in the same way that they used to be run. And I think that the more we can get people to change the, the way that they think a kitchen should be run, the better. And we're seeing a change. It's great. I mean, yeah, how many people, you know, say, oh, you know, I bet you never see your family. So, well, you know, I do see my family. Yes, I'm at work a lot, but I do see my family. You know, had you asked me 20 years ago, I'd say, no, yeah. never. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah, I'm working on my birthday, I'm working at Christmas and I and I don't, you know, if I don't use my holiday, then that's it. But now, you know, it's, it's quality of life, isn't it? And and I'm sure you're the same. You know, you, you have to have that right balance because if people don't have that balance, then they get depressed, you know, and, and it's, it's even... It's even harder yeah. to do that job that you want to do. And at the end of the day, what we want to do is produce amazing food for people that are going to enjoy that and want to come back. And that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, I think there's an irony to the fact that we spend all of our time in hospitality looking after people, making sure they spend time with their family and their kids and enjoying special occasions, yet behind the scenes we don't have that. And I think it's improving. It's definitely a challenge to nail because fundamentally people are enjoying their leisure time predominantly on Friday, Saturday, Sundays, you know, when the rest of your family may be off. So the hours can be a challenge, but yeah, we're, we're getting better at it yeah. without a doubt as an industry. Yeah. Um, so we're running out of time, but um, is there anything, and you speak to uh, a young person, you must have been given all sorts of advice or either issued advice over the years. Is there anything as a chef wants to come into the industry? Is there either any really bad advice that you consistently hear where you go, <coughs> ignore that, it's bloody rubbish, or the flip side, any really good advice that you've either heard or that you give out? out to that person thinking of doing this for a living um so uh i was at bournemouth college actually yes and i i was judging the spec chef course and i was chatting to the guys down there and, and one thing i always say to um the, the apprentices and, and the students down there is that you you're never too old to learn yeah as a chef you you're always learning if you have a passion for food then you should always follow that passion you know, I think if, if you if you love to cook and it's something which you wake up in the morning and go, I just want to cook this, you can make money out of it. And that was the one thing which which drove me forward. And and you know, just be excited. You know, if you're excited by food, then you should have a career in food. Because, you know, if if like I I said this already, but you know, if, if you wake up and you want to cook and you're enjoying it, then you, your work doesn't become a chore you'll never get sick and tired of it because it becomes a hobby it becomes part of your life and and i think that you know people that are excited by our profession should be in our profession you know the amount of people in this country and world that are unhappy with their jobs and hate getting up and going to work i mean i, I can't understand it really no. um i think what was the other question people uh either the best or worst advice really so the worst advice is i think um oh, I, I don't have i had any bad advice oh yeah i think the worst advice I've ever had, and I, I won't name a show anything, the worst advice I ever had was when someone said to me, the grass is always greener on the other side. If you truly believe it is, 
And if you truly think that that grass is going to be the greenest you've ever seen, you should go for it and do it because um, I was given that, I was, I was said, someone said that to me once and I completely ignored them and I've never looked back. So I think it goes back to, you know, something excites you and something is exactly what you think it's going to be and you see an opportunity, go for it. Don't ever, you know, don't ever feel that you're stagnating because it, it works and it's comfortable. You know, you should always try and push yourself and, and, and look for that next challenge or that next opportunity. Perfect. Okay. Well, that's a nice segue. Uh, what's next, either for uh, for James or the pig? <laughs> uh, well, for the pig, we're opening two new properties. So we have um, uh, a new hotel um, that's opening up in Harlem Bay. So just down near Pasto in Cornwall. Beautiful bits. Actually, very similar to the pig on the beach here. We're, we're overlooking Harlem Bay. You can see all the surfers down there. It's a, I think it's a 16th century farmhouse, I believe. Um, I've been down and seen it. It's absolutely stunning. That's being worked on now. It's opening springtime next year. And we have um, the pig in uh, Sussex, so over in a place called um, Maidhurst. And um, that's coming a bit later on next year. And yeah, I mean, for me, it's, you know, designing kitchens, meeting as many new chefs and apprentices as I can, and just, you know, pushing it forward, really. I mean, like I said, as a chef, you're always learning. You're always, you know excited about what you do and for me two new openings are going to be incredible and it's a real challenge so i'm, I'm really looking forward to that yeah amazing well good luck it's cool. a buzz. thank you um and where can people find out more or follow your journey or the pig's journey as as you so, wish yeah the pig is uh, at the pig hotel um i'm at james golding 10 on instagram and at james golding chef on twitter and yeah, come cool. see what we do. Perfect, excellent. Brilliant. I'll put the uh, I'll put the links in the uh, in the show notes as well. But thanks so much for spending the time. Thank you, Mark. And uh, yeah, it's it's an awesome uh, it's an awesome place, and you've been on an awesome journey. So uh, thank you, James. Thank you very much. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.